0: Hello and welcome to season two, episode six of Logicast, the weekly AWS news podcast brought to you by Logicata. I'm Carl Robinson, uh, CEO and co-founder of Logicata, and I'm joined, as always, by my colleague John Goodall. How are you doing today, John?
1: I'm okay. It was an it was a not horrible weekend. It was all right. I dug a bush up. Oh, bushes! Yeah. That's a new
0: that's a new topic for uh, Logicast. We better be careful with this one. It uh, could go uh, a couple ah. of different ways. Uh, but tell me, tell me about your bush, John.
1: <laughs> oh, I've been meaning, meaning to rip these things out of this border since I've lived in this house, and I've been here for like the best part of eight years. I finally got around to doing it at the weekend because i now have a, a nice shiny multi-tool that just cuts through things like they're not there so i could just whip Ooh. them out and it's i know it's nice you should get one
0: no uh no
1: tow bars and ropes involved no multi-tool to get the top of it off and then just a fork not the fork you eat with you know a big fork and then it just came out
0: Fabulous. Love a bit of manual labor. Nice break from uh, sitting in our sheds, uh, tapping around keyboards all week. Um, Anyway, um, uh, as you'll know, if you've listened to the podcast before, we're not here to talk about bushes and power tools. We are here to talk about AWS news. Um, Every week, I collate a uh, weekly AWS news roundup newsletter um, of news that I uh, have found, which I think you might find interesting. And then John and I. Uh, select a subset of those articles, which we think would be interesting to talk about on the podcast. And we hope you find them interesting, too. Um, So uh, the first such article this week um, is an article on HelpNet security about how Amazon uh, uh, S3 is to apply um, some new security best practices Um, for all new buckets. So we previously talked on the podcast um, about the fact that um, all S3 buckets will be encrypted by default, Um, but we've got some new defaults um, coming online um, very soon, um, which should hope to make those S3 buckets um, even more secure because we, do like to talk about and share news um, about leaky S3 buckets mainly as a warning to people about how easy it is um, to make your data publicly available on the internet. Um, Nobody wants to be that next headline, that next data breach. So John, tell us uh, what these new defaults are and how this is going to help to make people's S3 buckets more secure.
1: Well, this is a continuation of what they were doing—not with the encryption, but again with the public access. We spoke about this a handful of episodes ago, towards the end of last year, I think. And this is just a continuation of that. So, what AWS did back then was they brought on a new public access block—I think that's what they called it—which you had to explicitly disable and kind of remove the the block from the bucket policy to allow things to be public, and that. They kind of put in and went, yep, that's now there. And now what they're doing is they're taking the existing um, ACLs that have been in place for ages and turning block public access um, on by default. So it's just an existing control. They're flipping a little switch. And between that and the public access block, block public access and the public access block, we need to come up with some better names for these. Um, just everything is going to be a very deliberate action to make it public, which is good. Much better.
0: Excellent. So um, it's a very short article. I so think calling I it an article is about generous. About it <laughs> <laughs> it's more of it a notification, generous. really, isn't <laughs> it? It yeah. is. More of a notification. Uh, that, I that thought the it was worth easy.
1: bringing up because of the amount of spam we've seen just from our own accounts that we manage in customer accounts. Because I got one for my personal account, I saw one for the Logicarter account, I've seen one for every single customer account that we're on a mailing list for. So I thought we'd best at least give it some, you know, pay lip service to it.
0: So this is one of these things that you need to pay attention to, but you don't really need to do anything. You just need to be Basically,
1: you need to know about it, but you don't need to do anything. Um, it's worth noting that it only applies to newly created buckets, and it's not going to be retrospectively or retroactively applied to existing buckets. So if you've got a bucket that's already public and it should be public, you don't need to worry about it. If you've got a public that's already private, fine, you're doing the right thing. If you've got a bucket that you don't know is public that shouldn't be public, this won't fix it for you. So, you still need to go and look at your existing ones if that's appropriate to do.
0: Yeah. And uh, there are plenty of tools uh, out there which will help you to scan for and identify public S3 buckets. So there's really no excuse um, for, uh, for getting caught out in this way, um, unless, of course, you're operating hundreds of thousands of buckets and uh, you simply don't have the time to, to do those checks.
1: That's um, kind of where a lot of these things come from, right? Because you see it from these enormous companies and think they should know better. Uh, probably they do know better, but they missed it because they're managing a million S3 buckets. Hmm, hmm. Cool.
0: Well, it's great to see that these, uh, you know, AWS are finally doing something about it um, rather than uh, just blaming the customer because <laughs> in, the, in the shared responsibility model, it's always been a case of, well, you know, you've actually got to do something to, uh, to make the bucket public. So therefore, it's your fault. Uh, but actually, we've seen some really positive changes recently, which are going to make it that much harder um, to, uh, to make that same mistake. Um, So moving on from S3, then um, we're going into uh, VPCs um, and uh, we've got uh, an article on a new feature uh, which helps you to visualize your VPC resources from Amazon VPC creation experience. Um, So one of the things that we've always kind of criticized about AWS is it's it's very hard to actually see what you built. Um, (laughs) And uh, we, you know, we have... um, various tools that we use like CloudViz, et cetera, to help try and visualize what's going on inside the AWS um, accounts. Other diagramming um, tools are available. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, that was just the one that springs to mind. Um, but uh, it's really great to see AWS is starting to bring some of that into the console itself, um, so um, it actually passed me by that a year ago. Um, the, uh, the they launched the VPC creation experience, which did some of this visualization stuff, uh, because I did my uh, solutions architect certification before that, um, and therefore I've not really personally been building many VPCs since. But yeah, a year ago, um, the the new VPC creation experience made the creation of VPCs a bit more visual. Uh, but now. Um, Listening to customer feedback, I think AWS have gone beyond that um, and uh, given the ability to visualize VPCs that have already been created. So, yeah, what are your thoughts on this one, John?
1: You've just said everything I was going to say. See, I told you I'd read the
0: articles this week. <laughs> have that I stolen your thunder for a
1: It's worth saying that I'd miss this as well, right? And it's not because I was doing training for the wrong exam or anything like that. It's because 95% of the work that I do is in Terraform or CloudFormation or or whatever. So I just don't use the console that much for making things. I'm not a big user of ClickOps because Terraform. And I've mucked up a few VPCs in my time to the extent that there's a very nice community module in Terraform made by... Anton Babenko, forgive me if I'm mispronouncing your name, you're amazing because he's made just dozens and dozens of modules that are really quite useful, um, no cat, stay over there, and uh, it just means that you don't, I know she's getting in the way again, and um, it means you just don't get them wrong, which is brilliant because they're really easy things to get wrong you muck up a knackle, muck up a flow table, and you just stuff it up uh, so yeah, I miss this one as well, but It seemed like a very interesting decision that they made a year ago to give you this nice new console experience and you can visualise your subnets and your root tables and everything's attached and all that kind of thing. And then as soon as the VPC existed, they took it away. That's just... what? That just seemed baffling. And they seem to have agreed with me and they've made it available for things that already exist as well so yes without having to click through various things and look at really nasty kind of like detail tabs and work everything out and just know how things hang together there's a nice little graphic in the resource map tab which is a new tab and you just go oh look this vpc has these subnets has these root tables has these it sits in these availability zones and so on and so on and so on so it just makes life a whole lot easier for working out how things are kind of hung together in what is quite a difficult and opaque area of the AWS console experience for people that don't have advanced networking skills.
0: Yeah, and I suppose even if your environment has been stood up by Terraform, this is still going to work, right? So, hmm. uh, you know, if if you're not the person that wrote the Terraform code, um, this could still be useful for you to go in and... and get a visual representation of the vpc that was stood up by the terraform code um, particularly if you don't have access to the code or you don't know how to read the code like me Um, i (laughs) I wouldn't know how to read the code Um, so uh, you know this would be a very useful feature i can see like me
1: me I, i can see me and people like me you know consultants and the like using this quite a lot when you get access to a new customer environment that you didn't build so you can kind of see, oh yeah, this is where that hangs together. This is where this put together, and so on and so on. Right? A, a good case in point where this would have been useful was about three weeks ago when I was doing some transit gateway work for one of our clients, and in one of their accounts, because of how the the thing is set up, they've got I don't know, like half a dozen subnets per e- for each AZ, and transit gateway doesn't like that. So you kind of have to pick one subnet to attach it to that's in the AZ, and then it can kind of cope with that. But you can't have more than one subnet per AZ. So this would have been really helpful to see that because that that cost me an hour working that out.
0: Nice. So you've preempted my usual question <laughs> of, uh, will you use it? Uh, great. I, l- I love to see these new features coming out and actually having, uh, you know, real life use cases um, for us and for our clients um so uh, so well done you did actually manage to find something to say even though i uh, tried my very best to steal your thunder there john um so uh, yeah let's let's move on um from uh, from vpcs um into php uh, kind of rhymes but uh, not not really relevant um and as you mentioned earlier in our preamble uh, some good testing of my pop filter today so uh, scaling <laughs> php applications on AWS. So this is an article written by our very own CTO, Adriano Cataludi, um, who is Italian, but thankfully he has written this article for us in English um, so that we can all benefit from it. Um, So um, we, um, at Logicarta, we specialize quite heavily um, in um, managing PHP applications on AWS. We've got uh, several customers running um, applications with various different PHP frameworks, et cetera, in the AWS cloud. so um, we've put together this article um, about how to scale your PHP applications on AWS. And as you rightly pointed out, John, um, that uh, a lot of the tips here um, apply uh, equally to non-PHP applications. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the beginning of the article does go on to talk about um PHP and the various different PHP frameworks, et cetera. I think one thing I wanted to pick out was this tool that we've developed um, called uh, PHP Boost, um, which um, is a a free tool, open source tool, which you can download from GitHub um, to uh, help work out the best PHP FPM parameters um, for your EC2 host. Now, I don't really know what that means, so I'm hoping you do, John, uh, and you can explain that a little bit more
1: no ah <laughs> oh, well we should to, we should really rehearse <laughs> these things then shouldn't we i've been terribly i was amazed you managed to keep going through that whole spot with my cat's tail just dancing i away saw that i camera. did see the
0: cat's tail but i was being a consummate professional and ignoring it and
1: uh <laughs> well she sat down now, so she's out the way yeah. um so i'm not a massive user of PHP FPM. I know of it, I kind of know what it does, but the short version is like any other kind of framework or tooling or anything like that, there will be parameters. They won't always necessarily be the same. Most things aren't a cookie cutter model. Um, You will need to configure things, and this is just something that helps you kind of do that based on your setup, because you might have lots of money to spend, so you might be able to just throw big servers at problems, and that kind of works for a while, but it ends up being expensive. Um, you might not have lots of money to throw up problems, so oh look, here's a tool that you can use to make sure that you're nice and kind of tight to the wire so that you're running on the smallest server that you can possibly get away with. Quite frankly, what I like to talk what I like from this more than anything else, is uh, this nice interact, it's not interactive, but this nice kind of embedded sort of gif video thing that shows you how to use the tool, which I think is cool. I've always liked those. I've always liked those
0: and uh, it's nice to see logic art what's the name when they uh, do pictures in code
1: oh it's ascii art
0: <laughs> ascii art lovely to see some nice uh, logic art ascii art um, there in that in that demo um so um, should we talk should we talk about some of the other aspects of scaling um, that are not I mean we can directly do. php related
1: yeah cuz Like you said, and like I said in the preamble, a lot of this is kind of applicable to non-PHP applications because it's things like uh, making sure that your instances are right-sized so that you're not, you know, under memory provision and that kind of thing. Right-sizing quite often means downscaling things to save money, but it can mean upscaling things because they're not running properly. Um, It talks about things like putting um, data off of the server and into an external database, uh, not running your database on the same server that you're running your web application on, so that, again, they can kind of scale independently of each other, which is, again, something we've been talking to customers about. Uh, caching with other Rem, uh, Redis or, or Memcached. Just use Redis.
0: Or or caching, if uh, you're listening in <laughs> Australia. Um...
1: In Sao Paulo. <laughs> yeah.
0: Even um, though "cash" is a French word and it's clearly pronounced "cash," um, there um, are some people that choose to pronounce it cache, Um and, uh, I'm I sorry to, arguably, the <laughs> yeah, to the listeners. To the listeners, that Seo
1: Paulo joke was was a very in joke to the um, cloud training industry. I apologize if you don't get it.
0: I didn't get it actually. I missed it. I got the caching bit because obviously I said that, but uh, I missed the Sao Paulo.
1: <laughs> oh, did you not watch the uh, A Cloud Guru Ryan Krunenberg Crudenberg Crudenberg videos? Oh, is he? Uh, he he's also
0: guilty of that because he was who I had in mind when when I mentioned caching.
1: Yeah, no. In the in the earlier um, solutions architect one exams, when he starts talking about other regions, he says Sao Paulo and then Sao Paulo and then eventually starts saying Sao Paulo. <laughs> it's just embarrassing, uh, <laughs> but
0: so, so perhaps was corrected by someone that didn't want to go back and re-record the videos.
1: Something like that.
0: So I've completely lost the thread now that we've uh, started talking about
1: caching in Sao Paulo. Oh, dear. Yes, make sure you put your, your Redis cache in Sayo Paulo. Uh,
0: <laughs> the most expensive place to host a Redis oh, cache, God, I would imagine. Yeah,
1: but... yeah not cheap. Um, but yes, you know, offloading things, caching things. Uh, That's always useful because it reduces load on your database which means you can either spec it down a bit and save a bit of money or it means that if you're particularly write heavy, um, even a very high spec database will not respond as quickly as a Redis cache because Redis is all in memory so it will just kind of respond a lot faster and then you can kind of queue the writes up and deal with them later. Uh, that kind of thing is quite useful. Um, Offloading things like uh, email processing or anything else that can be done asynchronously to another service, SES being the example we've got in um, in the article, but you know, that kind of thing, just offloading things and putting things out off of your kind of main process such that you're not sitting there taking up user eyeball viewing time with things that they don't necessarily need to get immediately. So that's all kind of quite useful.
0: Um, And then there's there's a bit about scaling database servers um, towards the end of the article as well. Yeah, that talks about, yeah,
1: just read replicas. It's it's kind of the basics, again, to be honest. It's, um, again, for those that are unaware, you can have uh, two setups with RDS. You can either have one instance that's reader and writer, and just all your traffic goes to that. That's kind of your traditional setup, your mono database, if you like. Or you can have what they call read replicas, which is you have other databases that are complete replicas of your primary database, but they are read-only. And what this means is they can respond if, you, put, if you, you do need to update your application to kind of work with them, because it won't necessarily know that they're there, because they get new endpoints and DNS points and that kind of thing. But you read from the read replicas, and it takes the load off of the writer database. That's... That used to be a common design pattern for things like reporting databases, where you'd set up, uh, particularly in MySQL, you'd set up a MySQL replica. Um, You could write to that replica, but it wouldn't be replicated back to the main database, so you kind of just used it as a read-only, and then you'd do all your reporting off of that to avoid impacting the production database. So it's that, but just using it for more, if you like.
0: So this is all good stuff, Um, you know, it's something that it's uh, we come across on a regular basis with customers, uh, particularly startups, people launching new applications, etc. Developers start on a single server, get everything stood up working um, and then think uh, "Mm, what's going to happen when the users come? How is it going to scale? So, um, you know, some great advice in here um, to help people um, with that particular issue. And the best bit Um, of
1: advice is that neat little book of discovery call button at the bottom, plug. (laughs)
0: Uh, Of course, yeah. Um, Well, let's not make the podcast too much about (laughs) plugging our own services. Uh, But of course, this is our own blog post. So uh, I'm kind of doing that a little bit. But no, some great advice in there nonetheless. So uh, moving swiftly on to a non logicarta blog post. Uh, This one's from the AWS Cloud Operations and Migrations blog. Um, And uh, it's an article about using CloudWatch metrics to monitor time to expiration for reserved instances. Um, so um, again, another common problem. Very easy to uh, to go into the console um, and uh, order reserved instances. Um, not so easy to remember when those instances are going to expire. Um, and there's lots of third-party tools again, which will help you um, with this. Uh, but this particular article. Um, talks you through um, how to use cloud native tools um, to, uh, to, to to make sure um, that your RIs don't expire without you knowing about it. Because obviously what happens is if you purchase a reserved instance, you're getting a fantastic discount over the on-demand um, price of running that particular EC2 instance or um, RDS instance. But as soon as the reserved instance expires, you're back to on-demand and therefore no discount. So if you don't catch it, you're going to see a spike in your bill. Um, So uh, talk to us a little bit about this one,
1: John. This, Okay, so this is this is definitely a tale of two halves here. The The complaint I have is this is, again, AWS talking about taking away undifferentiated heavy lifting, and how they've done that is by telling you how to solve the problem yourself, rather than just solving the problem for you by having an email notification into the RI. It wouldn't be that hard to send an email, because they send you a lot of emails anyway, to the root email, to the technical contact, to say... You've got an RI, it expires in a month. You've got an RI, it expires in two weeks. You've got an RI, it expires in two days. Do- it, it wouldn't be that hard for them to do. So why have they done this? Yes, a blog post, it's could feed the algo. They don't need to feed the algo. Yes, it's probably a lot faster and easier for them to put a blog post out and knowing what we know about how, how aws works i wouldn't be surprised if this forms the backbone of a service that they do end up putting together in 18 months two three years time so i don't know watch this space and maybe they'll automate this problem away for you but i just take issue with the fact that our eyes have been out for ages and it's taken until now for them to even talk about how to solve this problem that's been a day one problem so i take exception to that that's that's my biggest annoyance (sighs) rant over in terms of got that off your chest (laughs) had to be said you know let's (laughs) we might be an aws partner and we might be trying to go up that ladder but let's let it never be said that i won't tell them what i think
0: yeah got to have got to have your own opinions about these things it's all good feedback
1: well i think it's important as well for clients that we're not just drinking the kool-aid and going oh they're amazing because they're not they have problems but this particular blog it's not a particularly complicated setup it's not you've got cloud formation that is creating a custom metric and an event bridge rule and an sns topic that event bridge rule is just used to trigger a lambda it's like cron but obviously not on a server that lambda looks at CloudWatch to read the custom metric the custom metric is just saying how many days until um The RI expires and it's sending that to SNS, which in turn sends an email or whatever. You could do it through a text message, you could send it to SES and get more advanced emails if you wanted to, but SNS is just the easiest thing to work with because it will just send plain text emails without having to go through DNS authorizations and DKIM and all that kind of thing. Um, They have, to be fair written the CloudFormation template to create all of this for you, and they have written the Lambda code that will do this, so it's kind of, they've rolled the solution for you, but they haven't built it into the console for, I'm sure, very complicated and detailed internal reasons that I don't care about. Um, But yeah, so yes, there's a solution to this problem. The Lambda is pretty noddy, they've done it in Python because they're sensible. Um, Sorry, I have a thing about that.
0: Still suffering from PTSD.
1: <laughs> Python to TypeScript Conversion Disorder. Stress <laughs> oh, Disorder. Stress Disorder. Stress disorder. <laughs> yes, a little, a little. Um, yeah, and to be fair, Python is probably the easiest language to put on a blog post like this because it's borderline English. You just read it, you know. I'm sure you could probably even work out what it's doing. Probably. It's sort of the point, right? Um <laughs> But then, yeah, then there's CloudFormation template and they've kind of put it all together and you just deploy it and configure it and it's all kind of fine. It's fine. It does the job. It's something that I think we should probably start installing for our customers as well, subject to them kind of approving it because there is going to be a small cost associated with deploying this for some people because Lambda doesn't run for free, but it does have a very aggressive free tier. It's four hundred thousand uh, gigabyte seconds, which is number of seconds that you've used one gigabyte of memory for free per month and seven hundred and fifty thousand invocations. So for a lot of people this is going to run for free. For people that are already breaching that, there will be a small cost associated with running this, but not a lot.
0: Probably not as big as the cost of missing the expiration of an RI and going back to on yeah. demand for that particular instance. So how kind of repeatable is this? This is a genuine question for my knowledge in terms of if you're doing lots of ris can you just kind of run this and it will pick them all up or do you need to kind of manually create it each time you you uh, put a reserved instance in place how how easy is it to use
1: so the way it works is you deploy it once and there's a custom metric that applies to i believe one um reserved instance so you put the reserved instance id in and it will just create a custom metric for that id right so to answer your direct question it's one deployment per reserved instance but with a little bit of work it could be made to do every reserved instance in your account it just makes the python a little bit more complicated so, what I might do is take one of those internal tasks that I love to do that help our clients out that they didn't ask us to do, and then we come up with a, oh, look, here's a thing, and they go, wow, that's amazing, Apple style, um, and just make it work for kind of every reserved instance in the account so that they just get a nice little report.
0: Yeah. Sounds good. We like yeah, it. I'm going to pinch uh, AWS's television?
1: code and just make it a little bit better.
0: I don't think you're really pinching it. They're they're promoting it on this blog post, so you're going to do exactly what they want you to do, uh, I would say.
1: Promote Uh, it, yeah.
0: Yeah, well, that's all good. Um, Well, again, glad to see uh, some more advice that that we can actually use. Um, So moving on um, to the final article for this week and kind of uh, back to your point that uh, AWS are not perfect. Um, This one is highlighting a little bit of a, bit of an error, uh, that was identified by another one of our partners, Datadog. It's an article on uh, InfoQ by AWS hero Renato Lozio, um, and it's talking about how AWS have recently patched some undocumented APIs uh, which were bypassing CloudTrail event logging. Um, So this meant um, that uh, you could potentially uh, perform actions on an aws account uh, without those actions being picked up uh, by cloud which of course is the whole purpose of cloud uh, is to keep a log of everything that's going on in an aws account so i don't know what those actions were uh, perhaps you can talk a little bit more to that john
1: about uh, what was going on here what the what the real risk was so the risk of so there's there's two points here right API requests that weren't being documented or logged to CloudTrail, as a rule, is bad and annoying. Yeah, it's not necessarily a problem, depending on what those APIs are doing, but it's annoying because they claim that CloudTrail is this all-seeing panacea of here's everything that's going on, log the management events, log the data events, and, you know, run your SIEM solutions and whatever on that. And it wasn't. It's just proves that, again, like like we keep saying, they're not perfect. They missed a few things. There were some API calls that they hadn't documented Um, either, I don't think it's negligence, I don't think it's deliberate, I think it's just a cock-up, really. I think they just missed it. It happens, big teams and that kind of thing. It happens. Um, And just things that could have happened in the account, you would never have known about because a lot of the security solutions rely on the fact that Cloud Trial is supposed to be logging everything. So there we are. The actual API uh, endpoints were things like "I am admin," which is a little bit scary, because it meant that you could do things like um, privilege escalation, and you'd never have even known about it. Uh, yeah, scary, mm. scary.
0: But it has been fixed, um, I guess. Yes. Which is the uh, the purpose of this article. Any idea? Do we know how long it was a problem for? No. Oh,
1: March say.
0: 2022. Oh, um, Yeah, there. Yeah, March 2022 until recently so it's quite a long time actually
1: well that's when they reported the issue that doesn't mean that's when it existed from you know it could have existed for years beyond that
0: yeah yeah but it's only recently been fixed so uh, you know yes. it like, has been an issue for for quite a while so um,
1: it's it's definitely worth saying one of the security researchers at crowdstrike um I have also said it's important to not grant wildcard permissions to things because that just means that, you know, even if there is an undocumented API that could be being called, they couldn't use it anyway. Yeah. Fair enough. Okay. Well, I think that brings
0: us neatly to the end of uh, this week's episode. Um, That is all of the AWS news that we had decided that we wanted to talk about this week. Um, So uh, once again, uh, if you're still here, thanks for listening. (laughs) Uh, that was episode if you're not uh, come back (laughs) (laughs) that was episode six uh, of season two of logicast uh, and we'll be back next week again with another episode for you Uh, see you again next time